please turn in the Word of God once again to 1 Peter. We're now in the final chapter, chapter 5. And last week we examined what is a truly Christian response to suffering. We saw how that we must expect suffering, and rather than fearing it or cowering from it, trying to live in a bubble and just hope it'll never happen, we must boldly face it, rejoicing in it, enduring it for Christ's sake, entrusting our soul to God in suffering. Now Peter is going to begin this next paragraph with the word, therefore. And that's instructive, because that means everything he's about to say today in this paragraph is in light of what we studied last week. He's turning his attention to the elders in the church. And I think the reason Peter does that in light of everything he's just said is that if anyone is to hold the line in the church, if anyone is to stand firm in the face of persecution and suffering, it ought to be the leaders in the church. It ought to be the church leadership. And so he addresses those in the church who are the elders. And the last message we looked at from Peter is just about as practical and on the bottom shelf as it gets. I mean, how to respond to suffering. That's immediately practical. I think we can all see the relevance in it. Today's message is a little more technical. Peter is dealing with positions in the church, and yet it's just as needful for us. And so I'm thankful that how we do studies in our church, book by book, paragraph by paragraph, verse by verse, expositional preaching forces us to examine all the word of God. And I trust you will see why the Lord has this here in his word for us this morning. Let's stand once again out of respect for the reading of God's word. We're going to read our text together. 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. There we read, Peter says, Therefore, I exhort the elders among you as your fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ and a partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily according to the will of God, and not for sordid gain, but with eagerness, nor yet as lording it over those allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. You younger men, likewise, be subject to your elders, and all of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another, for God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. That's the reading of God's inerrant word. You may be seated. Let's ask our Lord to bless his word to us this morning. Father, we thank you that as we open your word, we have confidence in you speaking to us. Uh, Father, we are not worthy of your attention, all of your care, but we thank you that you have sent your son into this world, who is the good shepherd, and he has proven his love by laying down his life for the sheep. And so, Father, we are confident that you intend to continue that care for us even this morning, that you intend to feed us from your truth. Father, please do a work of change in each one of our lives. And we pray if there be anybody here who has not yet entered into the fold of your flock by faith in your son, we pray that you would draw them into your fold by salvation. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. In 2005, in eastern Turkey, shepherds were sitting down to enjoy a nice breakfast. They had a flock of nearly 1,500 sheep. And this is a true story. It may 
quite a bit of headlines all over. For whatever reason, one of their sheep, one of the sheep suddenly walked off the cliff. Sheep do that at times. Shepherds know this. That's when it all started. The shepherds watched in dismay as all 1,500 or so of their sheep followed the leader right off the cliff. 450 of this flock plunged the 15 meters to their death. And thankfully, they provided sort of a cushion for the next 1,100 that would follow. All of the sheep went off the cliff. You get the picture. The sheep need a shepherd. Sheep need a guide. Sheep left to themselves without any shepherds to guide them are often so aimless and ignorant. It's not that they don't have any intelligence, but they just don't know who to follow, do they? Just a few years ago, there was a video of a shepherd actually that went viral where the shepherd is dealing with a sheep of his that's caught in this ditch and he pulls the sheep out and what happens is the sheep immediately begins prancing about and goes right into the same ditch. You see, sheep are foolish. Or they they need a shepherd, they need guidance and you can understand and appreciate then why God described in his words that we, his people, are like sheep. We often are misled. We often do the wrong thing. We often do the very thing we know is not good for us. We get ourselves into trouble. But as we read the Bible, we discover then, not only do we as sheep need a shepherd, but we need the right kind of shepherd, don't we? It's true that there is no end of people trying to guide sheep in this world. People trying to mislead the sheep. Oh, there's plenty of shepherds to go around. Ezekiel 34 would talk about evil shepherds. In the days of the prophet Ezekiel, and they were promising the people a false peace, and they were leading God's people astray, but they didn't properly guide the flocks or protect the flocks or really feed the flocks. They were shepherds concerned about themselves. When Jesus walked the earth, he exposed the Pharisees and the religious leaders of his day as hirelings. They were shepherds in it for themselves. They weren't about the flock of God. And now Jesus, this good shepherd, the chief shepherd, has given instruction to Peter, and Peter is relaying this instruction to our church in what is really here a two-part sermon. The first part, in verses 1 through 4, we see Peter addressing the elders of the flock. They are the under-shepherds that Christ himself has appointed to shepherd his church. And I don't think it's any wonder again why why he starts here. Because if the elders won't remain faithful, how can the flock of God be expected to follow the Lord and remain faithful? In the second part of the sermon, then in verse 5, Peter calls on the flock and he singles out the young men first of all, but all are ultimately called to follow God's faithful under shepherds. And so every flock needs shepherds. More truthfully, every flock needs good, faithful shepherds. And I believe the big idea here in verses 1 through 5 is that every church is God's flock. Every church is a flock that needs faithful shepherds. And because every church is a flock that needs faithful shepherds, Peter gives two commands from God that encompasses all of us as his church. First, the elders, we see, must faithfully shepherd God's flock. We're going to spend most of our time here. That is most of the portion of our text. But even if you're not a pastor, you say, well, this is not to me. No, you need to pay attention. Okay, you need to pay attention, first of all, because you need to know what is expected of the pastors in your church. 
And you need to know what is expected of the pastors in your church so that you can hold them accountable to what God requires of them. This is a message Peter gives to leaders as a leader. He begins by addressing the elders among them, among this flock. Who are, who are the elders? Who are the elders? When we use that term, elders, we typically mean it to refer to the elderly, right? We say respect your elders. We're talking about respecting people advanced in years. The Bible sometimes uses this expression elder in that sense. But here, that is not what Peter is simply talking about. He is clearly referring to the elders in the church in the sense of the office of the elder. You can read about this in 1 Timothy chapter 3 or Titus chapter 1. It is a position in the church that deals with spiritual experience, spiritual maturity. So although it, there are many benefits to having somebody who has a lot of physical maturity and is advanced in years holding this office, that's not necessarily always the case. In fact, in 1 Timothy 4.12, we see Paul had appointed Timothy as an elder in Ephesus, and Timothy was a young man. Paul says to Timothy, let no one look down on your youthfulness, but rather in speech, conduct, love, faith, purity, show yourself an example of those who believe. Paul was telling Timothy, what you don't have in terms of your young age, your lack of experience, you need to make up for in terms of setting an example for the flock. Spiritual maturity is indispensable to this office, and that is why in 1 Timothy 3, when Paul mentions that no man should hold the office of the overseer in the church if he is a new convert. He's saying that because no one should hold this office unless he is spiritually matured. He has demonstrated certain requirements for this office we see in the word of God. So the elders that Peter is writing to were certainly men of varying ages. And they were men, though, ultimately, that God appointed to this office as overseers, shepherds in his church. And by the way, if you do a study in the New Testament, you'll find there's three different titles that refer to the same office, the same position. Here, Peter is using the term elder, but he's also going to use this term for oversight from where we get the second title. It's overseer. That's the second title for a pastor or this elder position. And then the third one, I just gave it away, is the title pastor or shepherd. And so all three of those terms, elder, overseer, pastor, or shepherd, they all refer to the same office. In fact, the, the term bishop comes from this term overseer, and so technically, Pastor Kevin and I are bishops, but don't call us that, okay? Well, I mean, if you do, I feel like we'd have to get a fancy hat and robe or something, and I'm just not into that, okay? So all, I'm just saying, all of these titles refer to the same office we don't have in our church Bishops ranking over pastors, ranking over elders. We see it all as the same. Now, Peter's writing to many different churches, so there would be many different elders involved here, represented in his audience. But it's worth noting that wherever the New Testament uses this term elder, it always appears in the plural. Because that was the New Testament ideal, for a church to have a plurality of elders. And you know, there's many advantages to that. For one thing, it would be greater protection for the church to have a plurality of elders. They could keep one another accountable and in check and provide uh, greater protection for the flock as well. A plurality of elders also would provide a variety of giftings because each elder is going to be somewhat different. 
And of course, a plurality of elders provides a continuity of leadership in the church. Because if one elder suddenly passes or is removed for some reason, then the church is able to have some sort of continuance in its leadership moving forward. This is certainly an advantage. But just because a plurality of elders is ideal, that doesn't mean we just go out and make anybody an elder. I mean, God forbid. The New Testament is very clear that there are requirements for this. There is a process to be followed. Pastor Kevin and I were at a pastor's fellowship recently with many pastors and a couple different men, and I've heard this story many times, but a couple different pastors there shared how unfortunately they saw somebody very personable, very likable, very knowledgeable in the word, and they made them an elder all too soon. And it was a disaster. It split the church. It happens all the time. We don't make people elders because they are liked or they have a great personality. The Bible would warn us that this is a very serious office. And so there are qualifications. Most of them have to do with a man's spiritual character, though also, in addition, a man who is going to be an elder must be apt to teach. That's the real skill that is required. You must be skillful in teaching God's word. All right, now notice Peter addresses these elders as one who is an elder himself. He says, I exhort the elders among you as your fellow elder. Why should these elders listen to Peter? I mean, they're elders after all. Well, first of all, you'll remember Peter has identified himself in verse 1 of chapter 1 as Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Which is to say, Peter was fully aware and his audience was fully aware that he was directly commissioned directly appointed by Jesus himself to represent Christ to his church. That's what an apostle was, and we don't have apostles walking the earth today. But it's neat that Peter here now takes a humble approach, and he says, I exhort the elders among you as your fellow elder. Your fellow elder. That's beautiful. Somehow, it seems that the loudest experts in the church on how to pastor are those who have no experience of pastoring the church. And I don't say this as one who's completely innocent. I remember when I came back from college, my freshman year, to my home church, I had all sorts of punk ideas for my pastor. Recommendations for how we could make the church better. I had a lot of ideas, but I did not have pastoral experience. And let me say, when it comes to pastoring people, the gap between theory and practice is a vast and treacherous one. That's not Peter. Peter here had experience. He's writing as a fellow elder. He's got experience, pastoral experience. He knows what it means to suffer for Christ. In fact, many believe that Peter would eventually be martyred in Rome and that at this time when he's writing this letter, he is a pastor in Rome. You will see in church history that he was a bishop in Rome, but that would be the same thing again. He would be an overseer over a flock of God's people in Rome. There's much church history to support that idea. But anyhow, by identifying himself as a fellow elder, Peter's not merely setting forward experience. He's identifying with his readers as one who is among them. And that's to say, he didn't see himself as some kind of pope. He didn't see himself as some kind of larger-than-life saint with a glow about him and a halo above his head. That's not Peter. Peter is a servant speaking to equals in Jesus Christ. Now, Peter says, I exhort the elders among you as your fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ. Having just told us that we need 
to trust God in our suffering, Peter adds further weight to his words now. He is speaking as one who has witnessed the very sufferings of Jesus. Imagine that. Now, because the Gospels tell us that Peter fled the scene, you'll remember, he fled the scene after denying Christ, many commentators then believe Peter wasn't actually physically present at the cross of Christ. And that is very possible. It's actually possible he was somehow standing afar off and watching, but the Gospels don't tell us that. So some have said that Peter would here be saying, I am witness to Christ's sufferings by having myself shared in Christ's sufferings. That is a possible interpretation. You'll remember in chapter 4 and verse 13 that Peter talked about the need to be a partaker in, sharing in Jesus' suffering. We do that for suffering for his namesake. But even if Peter wasn't physically present at Jesus' crucifixion, it's possible he was, he certainly was a witness to much of Jesus' passion, wasn't he? He knew what was going on. He heard Jesus saying even before that time what was going to happen to him. Peter was a believer. He knew the sufferings of Christ. And so I believe we can take Peter literally here. He says, I exhort the elders among you as your fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ and a partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed. Do you see, in any case, Peter identifies himself as a witness, both of Jesus' suffering and his resurrection, his glory. Peter was a witness and a partaker in and, and watching how the historical Jesus physically died, physically rose, and Peter was not only an eyewitness, he was willing to suffer for this fact. This meant everything to him in his life. So to the elders, as an elder, Peter says, now in verse 2, here's the command, here's the main point, shepherd the flock of God among you. Shepherd the flock of God among you. The word shepherd, that's an imperative. This is a command. And Peter leaves the elders with three truths that we should hold our pastors to in this church. First, the elders must care for the flock of God. They must care for God's flock as a good shepherd must faithfully care for his sheep. The word shepherd is both a noun and a verb. Here it's the verb, though. And some translations will say feed or tend to or care for because the command describes everything that's necessary that a shepherd must do for a sheep. Obviously, as New York Metropolitans, we just are so far removed from shepherds, aren't we? I don't think anybody here is a shepherd. I don't think anybody here is experienced in shepherding. And so even though we, I just kind of mentioned a moment ago, I'll just remind you that sheep without a shepherd are the most pitiful Creatures on the planet, pretty much. They are extremely dependent upon their shepherd for food and water and direction and protection. And so the very image that Peter's using of the church as the flock of God indicates that pastors, then shepherds, are essential for the church's well-being. This is God's design. And when I read Peter saying this to these other men, hey, you need to shepherd the flock of God among you. The first thing I think that comes to my mind, maybe some of you are already thinking about it, is what Jesus himself told Peter long ago. Peter certainly would have remembered this. He never forgot it. John chapter 21. Jesus has risen. He's appeared to his disciples now on the shore of Galilee. They just had an unforgettable breakfast. And this is when, really, in light of the fact that Peter denied Jesus three times, Jesus asked Peter three times, Peter, do you love me? And you know what Jesus' response to Peter each time is? Tend my lambs. Feed my lambs. Feed my sheep. 
The second time, Jesus says to Peter, oh, you love me? Shepherd my sheep. Same word here. Same imperative Peter uses here later. Feed my sheep. Shepherd my sheep, Peter. That's what Jesus tells his apostle. And so from Jesus' words, and really from the New Testament itself, if we just collect everything that the Bible tells us that shepherds are to do, pastors are to do for the flock of God, I think we can at least summarize this in terms of three responsibilities. First, protecting the flock. Pastors or shepherds, if they are to care for God's flock, they must protect the flock within and without the sheepfold. We once had somebody in our church who was attempting to use this church, this assembly, as a platform for teaching their own ideas, spreading their ideas, ideas contrary to the word of God, ideas contrary to the articles of our faith and our, our constitution. And you say, well, what did you do? Well, I said, well, you're not welcome here anymore. You can't come here anymore. And you might say, well, that's a very unwelcoming thing to do for a church. And you're right. I guess everyone's not welcome in this church. Wolves are not welcome. We don't welcome into the flock people that have an agenda to undermine the flock and divide it. The Bible is very clear. Against such, we must, we must guard against such persons. We must remove them from the flock. Paul warned the elders at Ephesus that after his departure, savage wolves would enter into the flock seeking to draw away some after themselves. And Paul says, not mincing words, guard against such persons. They are wolves. The church is not a party where anybody can just check in and check out and do and say whatever they want. This is the house of the living God. This is the flock of God, and God loves his sheep. And it is the pastor's responsibility to protect the sheep. Protect the flock from false doctrine and divisions. A second responsibility we see in what Jesus has told Peter in, in the greater witness of the New Testament is that shepherds, if they're going to care for their flock, must feed the flock. They must nourish the flock. How do they feed them? I mean, we have, we have a great meal where we all pitch in downstairs. That's great, right? But what the Bible would make clear is that shepherds feed the flock from the word of God. Man cannot live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God, Jesus said. We need to live by the words of God. And it is a shepherd's responsibility to teach God's words. Shepherds or pastors are not entertainers then. They're not comedians. They're not supposed to make you feel good. You're not supposed to come here and a pastor tickles your ear and, and makes you walk out feeling all you know, fluttery inside. And oh, that's such a great... That's not a pastor's job. It's never been a pastor's job according to the Bible. Pastors are to feed people the word of God. They are to equip people for war. The saints for war. Spiritual warfare. To equip saints to do the work of the ministry. Ephesians chapter 4. But a pastor cannot adequately shepherd a flock from the pulpit. And so a third responsibility we see in the New Testament that comes with shepherding is, and caring for sheep then is guiding the flock. Guiding the flock. By providing a godly example, we see, for the sheep to follow and giving case-specific biblical counsel. The Bible must be brought down from the pulpit into the lives of the everyday individual. People need that. You know, it's fascinating that God uses this image for the leaders in his church as shepherds. Because a shepherd's job is to always be with the sheep. Shepherds don't just stay in their office and then go and visit the sheep one day in the week and see how they're doing. Shepherds live with the sheep. In fact, in Bible times, this is why the role of a shepherd was the lowest 
occupation on the social ladder because shepherds smelled like their sheep. Shepherds ate with their sheep and slept with their sheep outside in the fields. But that's the image. The shepherd's place is with the sheep. It's very demanding. It's a difficult, messy, dirty job. But the shepherds have to be with the people, counseling them one-on-one, understanding what's going on in their lives and explaining to them what the word of God is saying, endeavoring to counsel from God's word. That's the role of a shepherd. Peter says to the elders, however dirty and messy, however difficult, shepherd the flock of God. Now we spent some time on these first few details. We'll move a little quicker now. But in verse 2, he says, shepherd the flock of God among you, what? Exercising oversight. Exercising oversight. In addition to caring for the flock, Peter recognized that these elders, these pastors, must lead the flock. That's the idea of of taking oversight. And, And this is only consistent, what Peter says here, with the fact that the New Testament identifies pastors with that title, overseers. Pastors are overseers. And so pastors are to be overseers in terms of leadership over the affairs of local church ministry. And there's three things you should know about pastoral authority then. I know that's a very disgusting word in our culture, isn't it? Authority. But the Bible teaches it. That's the first thing you should know. Pastoral authority is biblical. Submitting to anyone's authority isn't popular with independence-loving Americans. I know that. But Peter says... The elders must exercise oversight. Concerning overseers, Hebrews 13, 17 tells us as Christians this. It says, obey your leaders, submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. That's quite astounding there. The author of Hebrews is saying right there that, yes, this authority is real because the elders over your flock, the pastors, will actually give an account for what they're saying to you or not saying to you. This is real authority. This is biblical authority, however unpopular that may be. Secondly, pastoral authority we see in the Bible is not absolute, though. It's not absolute because it's delegated to pastors from the chief shepherd, from the Lord Jesus Christ. In Acts 20, verse 28, Paul says, the Holy Spirit was the one who made the elders at Ephesus overseers. God is the one who appoints overseers, ultimately. He's the one who gives pastor teachers to the church, Ephesians 4. So pastoral authority is delegated to pastors by God himself. And so finally, that this should all follow from that. Pastoral authority is limited. Of course it's limited. And it's limited to the pastor's congregation, meaning pastors don't have authority over believers in another flock, but they are appointed and responsible only for their own local flock. Pastoral authority is limited by the congregation and other leaders. At least the New Testament model of a church is not a one-man show. It's not the church run by a single personality. Unfortunately, that happens sometimes because people don't want to get involved or whatever, but that's not biblical. That's not the model of a church. The church is the body of Christ functioning under, the flock functioning under the under-shepherd. And, and so we see a team of elders and a congregation itself keeps leaders, ought to keep leaders accountable to Scripture. There's much Scripture I could share there, but that's just it. Ultimately, pastoral authority is limited by Scripture. It all comes down to the pastor's authority is limited by Scripture. Pastors are not your priests. They're not your fathers. They cannot tell you where to live 
or what to eat or who to marry, their authority is limited to, thus says the Lord, whatever the Bible says. So be careful because pastors will sometimes go beyond what the scripture actually says and create laws that are not there in the Bible. And I've been on the receiving end of that. You have to be careful. A pastor's authority is limited by scripture, biblically speaking. And in verses 2 and 3 now, scripture limits for us pastoral authority by qualifying how a pastor is to lead the flock. He can't just lead the flock any way he wants. Uh, Peter gives us three contrasts. Three contrasts. Verse 2. Exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily, according to the will of God. Here's the first qualifier here, the first contrast. Pastors must have a willing heart directed by God's will. Not serving out a mere obligation then, but according to God's will. I think another way we could say this more simply is not out of duty, but out of love. Not out of duty, but out of love. In 2 Corinthians 5, Paul mentions how the love of Christ compelled him and his co-laborers to preach the gospel. What a beautiful thing. That Paul was certainly driven by duty, but it was love driving his duty to Christ. It simply wasn't for Paul fear. He feared the Lord, but it wasn't just fear. He loved the Lord. Duty certainly does have a place in motivating our service to Christ and to one another. But voluntary love is far, far stronger than compulsory duty. Hudson Taylor, you may know, was a very well-known missionary to China, director of the China Inland Mission. And he often interviewed candidates for the mission field. On one occasion, he met a group of applicants determining to serve. And he, he was asking them their motivations for service. Why do you wish to become a foreign missionary, he asked. And there were many replies one said, I want to go because Christ has commanded us to go into all the world and preach the gospel to every living creature. Another said, I want to go because millions are perishing without Christ. Others gave different answers. But Hudson Taylor, now a veteran missionary, said this. He said, all of these motivations, however good, will fail you in times of testing, trials, and tribulations, and possible death. There is but one motive that will sustain you through trial and testing, namely the love of Christ. There was a man who knew what he was speaking about. And that is so biblical. The love of Christ must constrain us in service. I think this is exactly Peter's point. He knew that being an elder in the church at this time would make you a target. And historically, we know that's what happened. Pastors were targeted. They were the first to be eliminated in the early church. And so any man who wasn't ready to volunteer all for Jesus, wasn't really good material for a pastor. He might have duty for a start to remain faithful, but when the bullets began to fly, Peter knew it's going to take more to hold you there. Faithful to Christ. It will take love, voluntary love according to the will of God. And Peter continues, and not for sordid gain. Oh, I'm so glad this is in here. We need this. And not for sordid gain, but with eagerness. Pastors, must be eager to serve God, not money. This isn't a business. There are things that in the church must be done in a business fashion because the Bible says in 1 Corinthians 14, let all things be done decently and in order. I mean, we're not Presbyterians, but we do try to do things decently in order. And so that's important, but this is not a business. And as I read this, 
Be eager to serve God, not money. My mind was immediately drawn to the richest preachers in America. You know, figures like Kenneth Copeland, buying their private jets, stuff like that. And if you just Google greedy preachers, of course, maybe you've done that. There's just no end of men, now women too, shamelessly asking for money. Shamelessly telling people, send your money to us, send your money to our ministry, and we will give you a blessing. In fact, if you don't do it, they'll guilt you. (laughs) And we just, it's amazing. It's tragic. But these people are so shamelessly asking for money, it's hard to believe they don't really know what they're doing. But that's the idea of the word here. This word translated sordid gain in the New American Standard, it means shamefully greedy. It means pursuing dishonest gain. I just want to say this, though. That was where my mind first went, of course. I think that's what we naturally think of, the extremes, don't we? But let's just be clear. Greed isn't about how much you have. It's about how much you want. It's about how much you think you need, how much you feel you need. That means you could be greedy and be poor, dirt poor. You can be controlled by money and not even have a lot of it, but you're drawn along by the want of it. And so even in a church of this size, we could be guilty of greed. Even a pastor, like in our church, can be guilty of being controlled by greed. Whenever a pastor is more concerned about what he wants than what God wants, that's what Peter's warning about. That's a problem. He cannot serve God. He'll be serving money. He'll be serving self. Now, Peter adds a third contrast, verse 3. He says, nor yet as lording it. It is, uh, that is your position as overseer. He's just said in verse 2. Your position as overseer, don't be lording it over those allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples to the flock. So pastors must be examples of Christ's leadership, Christ's Example of servant leadership. As alluring as the pursuit of money is, the drive for power is just as dangerous, isn't it? It was Lord Acton, you'll remember, who said, absolute power corrupts absolutely. We see that in politics all the time. We see that in history, in the history of politics, and in business. It's true. But we also can observe this in ministry, where a man begins to act as though he were accountable to no one. That's not good. Because no pastor, no leader in the church is a God, is a Lord over Christ's flock. Remember Christ's style of leadership? He told his disciples in Luke twenty-two twenty-seven, 27, I am among you as one who serves. He's one who serves. He didn't come to be served. He came to serve and give his life a ransom for many. And the fact that Peter says in this text that This is the flock of God we're talking about. And he even uses this language here. These are those allotted to your charge, allotted to you by God. This should remind pastors. The flock of God doesn't belong to you. It's God's flock. I know we use this expression, my church. That's fine. I actually think that's beautiful. I call this my church all the time. This is my church. But what I mean and what we should mean is that this is the church I belong to. This is the church I belong to. You know, every believer ought to belong to a church. That's biblical. That's New Testament. But the church doesn't belong to us. The church doesn't belong to pastors or to the leadership. It belongs to Christ. It's Christ's church. He's the one who redeemed it, created it. By his own blood, we are purchased to God. 
Pastors are to care for and to lead the flock of God. But since Peter has just discouraged pastors from greed or tyranny, these these wrong ways of leading, these wrong motivations, he now offers them a truly legitimate hope. Peter recognizes that the elders must hope in Christ's reward. Christ's coming reward. That's where their focus must be. Verse 4, And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Now please, understand, your pastors can use your encouragement. But Peter's saying here, the only approval that a pastor really needs to be about is the one that comes from the chief shepherd. It's the reward, the compensation of the chief shepherd. Pastors must keep their eyes on Christ. We all know the chief shepherd is Jesus, right? That should be obvious in the context. Jesus called himself the good shepherd. When the chief shepherd appears, Peter says, he's going to bring a reward with him for all his faithful servants. So when the going gets tough, this is to be a pastor's hope more than anything. This is what Peter says will hold you when it gets difficult, when you're a target, when people turn against you. It's the fact that Christ knows. Christ will take note. Christ is coming with his reward. Because every church needs good shepherds, we've seen the elders must faithfully shepherd God's flock. But secondly, to go along with this now, because every church needs good shepherds, the flock must follow God's under-shepherds. Verse 5. You younger men likewise, be subject to your elders, and all of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. Now stop right there. Peter, interestingly, begins with the most independent of the sheep. He first addresses the most independent of sheep and calls them to be subject to the elders. And I believe that's why he's focusing on the younger men here. Now, once again, some will read this, though, and they'll say, but, you know, we see younger men and we see elders there to be subject to their elders. So it seems like Peter's speaking about age. And I understand how that appears to us. But in the context, back in verse 1, Peter's clearly using the term elder to describe the office of elders. And, uh, and so it's best to describe verse 5 here, uh, the elders in verse 5, as the same sense in verse 1. I don't think Peter's switching um, his uh, usage there. And there's also, for sake of time, we can't get into it, but there's good historical evidence in the early church that, that this was a common way, a common practice of calling upon the younger men in the church to submit themselves to church leadership, elders and deacons. We see evidence of that. But why would Peter address the younger men in particular? Well, Peter probably singles out the young because he knows they're the most restless. They're the most prone to be independent. They're the most prone to wonder. Like all that testosterone. These are the most romantic. These are the most idealistic. They have their ideas of how the church should be run. And so if these who are the most independent are expected to submit themselves to the elders, surely everyone else is as well. Well, after a word to the most independent sheep, Peter says, and all of you, and all of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. That's beautiful. For God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Now here all of us, and even the elders included, are to be clothed with humility toward one another. Peter's addressing all born-again believers in Christ. 
irrespective of how long you've been saved, how much you know, whether or not you have a position in the church, you need this. You need to be clothed with humility. And the image of clothing ourselves with humility should remind us of Christ. Christ who clothed himself with human flesh. What greater display could there be of humility? God, the Son, taking upon himself human flesh. That was being clothed with humility. And then, in another very literal fashion, God the Son took a towel and tied it about his waist and took a basin of water and proceeded on his knees to wash the feet of his disciples. You see, Jesus was clothed with humility. Jesus would say the servant is not greater than his master. So if I have done this to you, you ought to do this to one another. That goes for everybody in the church. The leaders, down to everybody. Everyone should be clothed with humility in the church. And Peter supplies a reason for this. For God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. This needs to be said because wherever there is pride, mark it down, there will be division and insubordination in a church. Wherever there's pride, there will be contention. Wherever there's division, we could turn it around. Wherever we see division and insubordination, we know there's pride there somewhere. Proud people just have a problem with authority, don't they? But Peter's saying, pride won't get you anywhere with God. Why? Why, Peter? What's the, what's the issue there? God is opposed to the proud because he knows pride is satanic. It goes all the way back to the pride of the devil himself. The first act of rebellion against God's authority. The devil who first lifted himself up against God. And so no wonder God hates pride. It can be found at the root of any sin. And the only way to combat it is with genuine humility. In this context, humility is a matter of submitting ourselves to our equals in Christ. That's right. Leaders, the leaders in the church, are not above God's people. They are equals. We all have the same Holy Spirit. We believe, just as the Bible teaches, in the priesthood of all believers. So pastors or elders, overseers, whatever you want to call them, are not your priests to bring you to God. But they are shepherds to watch over your soul. They are equals that you submit to out of humility. Just like a husband we see in the home is the equal with the wife, and yet the wife is called to submit to the husband. Submitting to equals. That requires humility. Or in the context of a family, the children submit to their parents, not because the parents are greater, they're equals, of equal value at least, but there is a beautiful order there that God has designed in marriage, in the home, and yes, even in the church. Some will say, well, that sounds like Peter's maybe calling us to check our brain at the door, or group think, you know, if we just do what the elders say, then then we, we can't think for ourselves. That's not at all what the Bible's saying. Of course, our conscience, our mind must be captive to the Scripture. We must even hold our pastors accountable to that, to what the Word of God says. But Scripture commands our subjection to Christ under shepherds. Here, and more plainly, in many passages, I'll just we don't have time to get into these, but Hebrews 13, 17, I quoted a moment ago. 1 Corinthians 16, 15 through 17. 1 Thessalonians 5, 11 through 12. 1 Timothy 3, 4, and 5, and 5, 17, among others. We don't follow under shepherds on the condition that we like them or in the condition that they're just so knowledgeable or always right. I don't have to tell you this, but when God gave you parents, he didn't give you perfect parents. And yet, 
We're not to honor our parents because they're good or perfect, but because God says this is right. And by the same token, then, God has designed, just like for the family, he's designed parents to rule over children. He's designed for elders to rule over the church. And we could say God's design for his flock is to follow the leadership of under-shepherds. Not because of who they are, but because of who Christ is. Because of his commands. This is his model for his flock. Beloved, this requires humility. But however long you've been saved, or however much of the Bible you know, we all need faithful shepherds to watch over our soul. This is what Christ has appointed. Every church is a flock. Every assembly of God's people is a flock that needs a faithful shepherd. And because this is true, Peter relays two commands from God. He's told us the elders must faithfully shepherd the sheep. They must shepherd God's flock. And the flock must in turn follow God's under-shepherds. So in closing, here's just some practical applications. Please pray for your pastors. Pray for Pastor Kevin and I. Pray for our, our deacon, Brother Victor. Pray that God would raise up more elders in the church. Pray for the protection of, of those currently serving Christ as elders in our church. And also keep your pastors accountable to follow the commands of our chief shepherd. Because nobody here has absolute authority but Jesus Christ. It's his church. Let's go to the word of God. I'm not talking about looking at what other churches are doing and saying, they have a really cool music program. Let's do that, Pastor. If you don't do that, you're not doing the will of God. That's not biblical, okay? I'm talking about looking at the Bible and saying, the Bible says this, we're not doing this, Pastor. You're in sin or you're misleading the church. That's biblical. We must hold pastors to the word of God. So keep us accountable to God's word. But lastly, humble yourself. Humble yourself. It requires genuine humility for any one of us with all of our experience and knowledge, and some of you are just, God has gifted you in so many ways, that certainly I am not, and Pastor Kevin is not. And it requires humility at times to submit yourself to the authority of Christ under shepherds. But there's humility in that, and God is pleased with that. That's his model for the church. Now, my friend, if you've never come to know Jesus, if you're here and you've never come to know Jesus as the good shepherd, you've never come to know him as the one who has given his life for the sheep. I just want you to know he came to this earth. He gave his life for you. He rose again so that sinners just like you might have hope of eternal life. That you might enter into his sheepfold and be saved. And so if that's you this morning, you say, I'm just not sure that I'm one of Christ's sheep. I'm not sure I belong to him or I've entered into his sheepfold. I just want to encourage you that you can come under the protection and care of Jesus Christ even today. He's just a call away. The good shepherd will hear you. And if you're concerned about that, it's certainly because he's working in your heart. He's drawing you. And so if you have any concern, any desire, you say, you know, I'm just not certain. I belong to the Lord Jesus Christ. And I'd like to know that for certain. Please don't leave today without seeing me, seeing somebody, and just having a show you from the word of God, from God's word, how you can have a genuine relationship with Christ. Let's pray.